Barry is not going to abandon Semyon Varlamov. Matthew Barzell cares about, you know, getting back on defense now. Put it all together. The Islanders look like a formidable team, a team that's got a legitimate chance to last in a long trying playoff series. I would be totally in favor of that. Um, but we'll see if Barry agrees with me. Newsday presents the Island Ice Podcast with Andrew Gross. And welcome to Island Ice, Newsday's New York Islanders podcast, episode 81. I'm Andrew Gross of Newsday. You can find me on Twitter at agrossnewsday. You can also find me on Newsday Islanders Text, which is your direct connection to one-on-one communication with me. You can text 631-303-3766. That's 631-303-3766. Or go to newsday.com backslash text to start your 14-day trial subscription. For this episode, I had a long chat with my friend Pierre Maguire of NBC Sports. Pierre called Sunday's one nothing overtime win in Philadelphia, and we went over a wide variety of topics, starting with the Islanders and then delving into the rest of the league. And we'll get to that chat with Pierre Maguire of NBC very shortly. Also, after that, I've got some Andrew's answers for your questions. But quickly, looking ahead... The Islanders open a very interesting six-game stretch on Tuesday night at Nassau Coliseum against the New York Rangers. They face their rivals and the first-place Capitals three times each over the next six games, with four of those games being at the Coliseum. The Rangers are coming off a four-game sweep of the Devils, and have been coming on real strong of late, uh, especially with Mika Zibanejad refinding his scoring touch. Uh, The goalie choices for Tuesday will be interesting. Uh, Will Barry Trotz go back to Semyon Varlamov after two really strong performances by rookie Ilya Sorokin, that being Friday's 3-0 loss in Boston, which really could have been, you know, uh, could have been a a bigger hole uh, than the 3-0 loss. And also Sunday's 1-0 overtime win in Philly, which was Sorokin's third shutout. He absolutely stole two points for the Islanders. Varlamov's last start was a a 4-1 loss in Boston uh, the night before the 3-0 loss, so on Thursday. And, and, And look, Varley was not bad at all in that game. You know, if I say Ilya Sorokin, you know, kind of kept it at 3 nothing on Friday, then, boy, the way the Islanders came out in that first period on Thursday in Boston, uh, if it wasn't for Semyon Varlamov, that, that could have been a 3-4 goal deficit through 20 minutes. So, you know, Varley... I, I know Sorokin just started two games in a row. Varley is also playing well. So like I said, it's it's an interesting choice for Barry Trotz. And, and then does Rangers coach David Quinn counter with Igor Shosturkin or Alex Georgiev? Um, you know, Shosturkin, uh, it was Shosturkin, Sorokin the last time the teams played. And that was all fun. And it turned out to be a really you know, good performance by both Russian goalies. And, and of course, uh, Georgiev has just, you know, played lights out against the Islanders. So, so both coaches with interesting goalie choices 
uh, for for Tuesday. And look, to be fair, the Islanders have made a lot of goalies look really good of late. You know, just check out the Bruins' Jeremy Swayman uh, on Friday, who had a shutout in his fifth NHL appearance. Um, the Islanders have won five of their last eight games while scoring just a sum total of 11 goals in those eight games. That's an average of 1.4 goals per game. And I know Lou Lamorello and Barry Trotz insist it's not how many goals you score, it's how many you give up, but this is cutting it way too fine. Put it another way, the Islanders have 11 goals over their last even, uh, over their last eight games. And the game before that, the ninth game, they beat the Capitals 8-4. So just three more goals uh, over their last eight games than they did in that one game, which was their season high for goals. And I'll talk about the Islanders' goal-scoring struggles and a whole bunch more with Pierre Maguire of NBC Sports, which is coming up right after this message. Get the latest on the New York Islanders when you sign up to receive text alerts all season long. Newsday's Andrew Gross will text you real-time analysis and behind-the-scenes reporting for $4.99 a month. Go to newsday.com slash text to get started or text 631-303-3766. That's 631-303-3766 or online at newsday.com slash text. And again, like I said, thrilled to be joined by my friend Pierre Maguire of NBC Sports, who uh, has been doing this around the league, he said, for 33 years, which is uh, a lot of hockey knowledge to uh, to go through here. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, first off, how are you doing? Doing fantastic, Andrew. Really nice visiting with you. It's a different kind of a world this year, obviously. It's been an unbelievably different National Hockey League. Last summer, for instance, I bet I spent a lot of time in my career in Edmonton. Yeah. I've never spent nine and a half weeks in Edmonton straight. So um, that was really different. The pod was a unique experience. I'm glad I had a chance to go through it. I learned a lot about a lot of different people in the National Hockey League, including the officials. Their professionalism blew me away last summer, and I had a chance to work out with most of them on a day-to-day basis. We all stayed in the same hotel, and we almost became like a little family. It was awesome. But I learned so much about the officials. They're probably the most overlooked people in the National Hockey League, Andrew. They all have backstories. They all have families. They all care about the game. They have passion to be professional. So this has been a unique year. I've learned a lot. But uh, more than anything else, I'm just grateful that we're starting to see some late at the end of the tunnel in terms of getting fans back in the building. Yeah, slowly but surely, uh, Nassau Coliseum still hosting at 10%. I saw there was about 3,000 uh, at Wells Fargo Center, which is just a giant building. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let, me, let me start there because you, uh, you were between the benches uh, for the Islanders' one nothing uh, overtime win in Philly uh, on Sunday night. And just what what did you take from that game? What are you seeing from the Islanders? I, I know goals have been very scarce for them, yet they continue to win. Uh, I think it's they've won six of nine, and, and they've only scored, I think, what is it, 11 goals. They, they've been held to one or fewer goals in three straight games, four or five, two or fewer in seven of eight. Uh, is this just typical Lou Lamarillo, Barry Trotz success here? I think the part of it is that for sure. This is a really deep team, though. You know, Andrew, I made the point in the 
open when I was talking to Brendan Burke about the depth of the Islanders down the middle. And when you look at it, starting with Matt Barzell, then going to Brock Nelson, and now obviously J.G. Paggio and the potential for Travis Zajac. And then you look at Casey Sezikis, probably the best depth center in the National Hockey League. That depth down the middle is overwhelming. There was one sequence in the first period where Sezikis, who's a left-hand shot, was on the wing, and Zajac, who's a right-hand shot, was taking a draw even though he started the game as a right winger because it was on his strong side and, you know, Travis won the draw. So it shows you good coaching, good manipulation of your lineup and the depth that the honors have. So they really set Andrew at center. That's really apparent. I do think they're very good on the wings. I think Paul Mary will eventually score a bunch of goals for them. Their defense is obviously very strong. Um, but what stands out to me is the stability and goal. Ilya Sorokin last night in Philadelphia, Andrew was phenomenal. He yeah. wasn't a little bit good. He was really, really good. Yeah, no, and you, you brought him up, and uh, obviously that's that's at least, you know, the, the second or third game where, where Ilya has flat out stolen two points for this team, and, and you know, you're going to need that from your goaltending uh, along the way. It, I, I don't know how much of Ilya you got to see before he came a lot. Yeah, right. Is, is any of this surprising? Did you figure his game would translate to kind of the rougher – NHL, because uh, to me, it's been not surprising, but I've been very impressed with how quickly he's been able to learn how to track pucks through traffic and, and, and control his rebounds and, and not get flustered by, by all the traffic at the crease, which you don't get as, as much, you know, in the KHL or in, in international competition. Andrew, those are such great sentiments and thoughts. And I like, I really respect what you just said. So I'll give you a, a real good short story. Yeah. John Ledecky is a very good friend of mine and somebody I respect tremendously, one of the owners of the New York Islanders. And before Lou Lamorello took over, I was doing a game at Madison Square Garden and John happened to be there and he came down to chat with me and we were talking about the potential of the Islanders. And I said to him, if the Islanders were a stock, I would buy them now because they're not particularly high priced. And I think eventually they're going to be very high priced. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, well, one of the reasons why is Ilya Sorokin, who you own. And he's like, how good is he? And I said, we'll never know until he gets onto the smaller ice surface and plays with all the traffic that you were just alluding to, Andrew. And we're finding out now that the traffic's not an issue for him. I think whenever you're evaluating European-based goaltenders, whether it be Russia, Czech Republic, Sweden, Finland, doesn't matter. You need to see them on smaller ice to see their battle level and how it gets engaged. We see it from Vasilevsky down in Tampa. When Pekka Rene came over, you saw it from Pekka. Uh, and you're seeing it from Shesterkin, obviously, with the Rangers uh, and Gorgiev even. And then now you're seeing it with, obviously, Ilya. And I think it's a really important part of it. So you touched on something that's really important. Now we know he knows how to battle, which is really important. You, you were obviously a coach in this league. Do you subscribe to the kind of the NFL sort of if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback? Uh, does that apply when it goes into the playoffs with goalies? Do you need to know who your number one is or can Barry, you know, use both of them equally, do you think, in the playoffs? You know, what's amazing to me is uh, Philip Grubauer was a starting goaltender for the Washington Capitals the year that Barry Trotz won the Stanley Cup. Right. Know who the finishing goalie was? Brady yeah, Holtby. Yeah. <laughs> so we've seen that happen a lot, you know, and I think it's something that's really important. Depth and goal matters. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of two Stanley Cup winning teams in 91 and 92 in Pittsburgh. And 
one year, Tommy Barrasso carried the ball for a good amount of time. And another time, Tommy got hurt and he wasn't able to carry the ball. I mean, I'll never forget 1991. You can go look it up on YouTube because I know YouTube is running it. In game six, I believe, in New Jersey, Frank Peter Angelo makes a save against Peter Stastny in New Jersey. It's still called the save in Pittsburgh. If he doesn't make that save because Tommy wasn't playing, he was hurt, we don't move on. We eventually go on to win the Cup in 91. And I remember when Tommy got hurt in 1992, Kenny Reagan came in for us, and Kenny Reagan played some fantastic hockey for us. So I think you need to have depth and goal. I really do, especially during the playoffs. Yeah, no, and, and and Barry has been, you know, he's he's alternated, and but th- this was the second time uh, Sorokin had started consecutive games, and I asked him after the game about you know getting into a rhythm and and his answer, and you know you got to give Ilya a lot of credit for learning English and trying to communicate in English, and and he did his interviews the other night without an interpreter, and his response was can play more. So I, I know he wants the workload there. <laughs> they all say the same thing. It doesn't matter what language. It's like the language of love. It all translates with hockey players. I can play more. They all want to play more. <laughs> is, is, is the way the Islanders are playing, and, you know, I, I know, you know, at some point I, I agree. Like, I advocated for, for Lou to go out and get Kyle Palmieri. I covered him with the Devils, and, and I know – how well he fits into this group, his style of game, that hard edge, go to the crease, you know, kind of with a snarl and, you know, getting Travis Zajac. I know Lou was looking for him last season, but I I wasn't sure Trav would want to waive that no trade clause, but, you know, eventually this team's production is going to get a little bit better Is, is the way they're playing. How you know, we saw last season how suitable it was for the playoffs. Do you see sort of the same thing going forward, or do they need to really start scoring some goals and get their power play going to, to have some some success here? Well, you just touched on the most important thing. you got to score power play goals. Um, you know, I know Lou's team, one of those Stanley Cup years in New Jersey, had the worst power play in the league during the regular season. Then in the playoffs, they flipped the switch, and the power play started <laughs> kicking in. Um, I think the power play's got to start kicking in for the honors. That will help them a lot offensively. Uh, but the style that they play is a playoff style. The depth that they have, especially down the middle, is awesome. And then the, I think the one component you have to have if you're going to win the Cup, Andrew, you have to have a matchup tandem. And in Pollock and Pellock, they definitely have one of the better matchup tandems in the league. And so you put it all together. The honors look like a formidable team, a team that's got a legitimate chance to last in a long trying playoff series. But if you don't have depth in this NHL and the ability to play a four line game, chances are you're going to run out of racetrack pretty quick because you just won't have the stamina to win. Yeah. You know, Barry, I don't know if you were on the uh, pregame interviews, but Barry was being asked about the power play yesterday and he, and he said something interesting. He goes, we're not a team built around relying on the power play just because it hasn't worked in my three years here. You know, we're built to survive five on five. And basically, they just don't want power plays to lose momentum and lose games for them. Right. Well, I can tell you this. You should have and you could have during that interview said to him, well, I remember when you were in Washington and your team won the president's trophy and they had the number one power play in the league. And 
I remember when your team won against the Vegas Golden Knights and the Pittsburgh Penguins to win the Stanley Cup in 2018. Your power play was really good, and it made a difference. Now, to be fair, not every team has Ovechkin. Not every team has Nick Baxter, and not every team has John Carlson, and not every team has TJ Oshie. Those are major components of the Washington Capitals power play that was then and it still is now. Uh, but Jim Hiller runs the power play for the New York Islanders. He's an assistant coach. He was in Detroit with Mike Babcock now, obviously, with the Islanders. And so at some point, Jim's going to have to come up with a scheme to get a little bit more energy on the power play. And I, I think they understand that as an organization. Yeah, and, and, and it's a little bit weird because obviously Ovechkin is Ovechkin and, and no one should be mentioned in the same breath with him with, with the way he plays on the power play. But, but Barry does have two players he can line up in that Ovechkin spot in Oliver Wallstrom and Ryan Pulak. Um, and, and you've also got Matthew Barzell and, and it's just, and now you add Kyle Palmieri to this. He, he's using Travis Zajac. It's surprising to me with some of the pieces he has at his disposal, Jordan Everly too, you know, will get around the crease. Uh, it, and, and Pajot is, is just such a little pest around the blue paint. Um, and Brock Nelson is, you know, has has made a, you know a, a living, you know, uh, on the power play. It's just surprising that it, it 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 consistently doesn't click for them. Yeah, I think it will though. Eventually, at some point, I think they're going to figure out a scheme that works best for them. Whether it's pile driving pucks from the back end, whether it's playing that Ovechkin. You see Oliver Wallstrom as much as anybody. He can shoot the puck as a right hander on the left hand side of the ice. Barzell's got the crafty mittens and the real good brain. I think the biggest thing is just getting some confidence on the power play. You know, again, I can just speak to it from experience. I had a chance to work with the power play in Pittsburgh where we had some pretty dynamic players like Joey Mullen and Paul Coffey, Larry Murphy, Kevin Stevens at the time, and, and Mario Lemieux. And then I went to Hartford and I tried to run the same schemes in Hartford <laughs> that I did in Pittsburgh, and they don't work. So you got to change. And I think that's something that eventually they're going to figure out a scheme that works for them. And I just wanted one more uh, going back to the beginning, you were talking about how their, their versatility on face-offs, you know, Pajot, uh, Nelson, uh, Zajac, uh, Casey Sezikis, all very trustworthy in the face-off circle. Is it, is it a detriment that your top line center, Matthew Barzell, is a guy that Barry gets out of the faceoff circle pretty much whenever he can? No, I don't think so at all. I'll give no. you a case in point on that. Um, this is pretty cool, too. Ronnie Francis came over from Hartford. And again, this is from personal experience. And he was one of the most dynamic faceoff players that ever played in the game. He was phenomenal as a faceoff guy. And Mario Lemieux wasn't as good on faceoffs. So we would start every power play with Ronnie taking the face off, Mario over on the side. And then after the face off was one and we would establish puck possession, Ronnie Francis more times than not would drop back and play the point on the power play after taking the draw. And he'd be on the back end with Larry Murphy. So you can do that. I don't think that's that big a detriment. I think the most important thing with your top line in particular, Barzell's part of that, puck possession matters a lot and you got to manage it properly. Last night against Philadelphia, that was not a good puck possession game by the New York Islanders. And they know it. I talked about it on TV. Matt had a tough game. Matthew Barzell had a real tough game puck possession-wise. But that's an important part of it. But in terms of the face-offs, I don't think it matters that much. I really don't, Andrew. 
could could some of that and again this ties into the lack of goals lately Matt is a guy who takes a lot upon his shoulders and I know the responsibility he feels for for kind of powering this offense did you see in any way a player just trying to do too much a little bit last night yeah I thought in the early part of the game he was then he got really frustrated at himself and Barry Trotz calmed him down he came over behind him on the bench he put his arms around him and I thought it was a good example of a coach really understanding the player and the point that you're alluding to, trying to do too much and maybe putting a little too much pressure on himself. I thought in the overtime, in the three-on-three, Andrew, he was delightful to watch. I mean, that was phenomenal to watch that. What a display of edgework, puck control, vision, composure. I mean, he put it all out there. Uh, He was phenomenal. So I'll tell you one thing. I'd rather have Matthew Barzell than not have him. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I, I mean, my thoughts watching Barzy skate, and, and he's such a beautiful skater, is that probably 90% of the people on this planet, if they tried stopping and turning the way he did, would snap both ankles immediately, right? I once asked Jonathan Quick during the Stanley Cup running years with the LA Kings, you know, everybody used to copy Marty Brodeur. Everybody used to copy Patrick Waugh. Some people try to copy Dominic Hasek. Do you think kids will try to copy you? And he looked right at me, totally straight up, Andrew, on national TV. And he says, uh, they can try, but they're (laughs) going to end up in the emergency room. (laughs) So it's kind of what you're talking about with Matthew Barzell. You can try to copy him, but chances are you won't be able to do what he can do. Yeah, and, and Quickie is just rubber man. I mean, I, I he he might be the most flexible human being I've ever seen. It was so. unbelievable to watch him in his prime. And now you see the price that he's paid. All the hip surgeries, all the back surgeries, all the abdominal wall surgeries, all the knee surgeries. Like he's, that guy's been under the, the knife so much. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a local guy from Connecticut, too. So yeah, That's right. Avon Old Farms, a beaver from Avon Old Farms. There you go. <laughs> um. So, so the Islanders get Palmieri, Zajac, and Braden Coburn, who makes his Islanders debut last night. The, the Caps go out and, and land Anthony Mantha, who I think is still scoring, you know, as we speak. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Penguins get Jeff Carter. The, the Bruins obviously get Taylor Hall. And I think a, kind of an underrated piece to that is they also get Curtis Lazar in, in that trade. Yeah, and that's, you know... So how do you see this East division shaping up? Uh, I mean, it's very tight. The Rangers are coming too. And, and the Islanders got to play the Caps and the Rangers, you know, three times each out of their next six games. Yeah, well, I'll tell you one team that I wouldn't want to play long-term would be the New York Rangers. I think with Jeff Gordon and Chris Drury and John Davidson, along with Gwen Sather, who actually approved this rebuilding plan, uh, have done a magnificent job. This team is just scratching the surface. If you think they're good now, Wait for two years from now, Andrew. They're, I know their players and the guys that are coming. And that's not even counting Zach Jones, who they just turned pro out of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Mills Lundquist, one of the best defensemen outside the National Hockey League. Braden Schneider was phenomenal for Canada at the World Junior. Um, you can look at Matthew Robertson, another kid out of the Edmonton Oil Kings organization, the Western Hockey League. They're so deep on defense. They're so deep at forward. Um, this Ranger team is going to be very good. So that's the one team, if I look at it, I don't know if they're going to have enough to make the playoffs this year, but long-term, they're going to be real good. Washington's got to get something done this year. Their window's starting to close a little bit. They don't have the prospect power that a lot of the other teams in the East do. 
I like to see what Pittsburgh is going to do long-term because I think Ronnie Hextall really understands drafting and cultivating. Ryan Burke's an elite deal maker. Sidney Crosby still got significant game left. So they're going to be very, very difficult long-term, but the East is a beast. And, you know, Boston Bruins, they're, they're a team. If they get everybody healthy and they need Matt Grizzly back, they need Brandon Carlo back. They just got Charlie McAvoy back. Um, they got to stabilize their goaltending position a little bit. Who's going to be the guy, but they're going to be tough and they're so well coached in Boston. I think one of the best coaching staffs in the leagues in Boston. So you put it all together. The East is a beast. It's not going to be easy for anybody. Yeah. And you know, I, I agreed with something you said on the broadcast last night, because if you go back and listen to, you know, my preseason podcasts, I thought the Flyers were going to be certainly in the top four in this division, if not the best team in this division. And, you know, I, I'm really surprised. How, and obviously they got a really good game in, in net for Moose last night, but I'm surprised how they've struggled defensively this season. I'm absolutely shocked. It's the biggest surprise. I've had. I got it totally wrong. Um, I thought that they were going to be a team that could legitimately win these. I thought they'd build off of last summer's uh, experience in the pod in Edmonton. They clearly haven't been able to do that, Andrew. Uh, there are a few things wrong. One, they got to stabilize their goaltending position. I think they're aware of that as an organization. They got to find more five-on-five offense. They're going to have major question marks with the cap going forward. Giroux's eight-year contract comes to a close at the end of next season. Uh, Couturier's six-year contract comes to a close at the end of next year. Both those players had the potential to be unrestricted free agents. Then you look at their defense, and Travis Sanheim might have played his best game of the season last night, yeah. but he's been up and down. I never thought the retirement of Matt Niskanen would hit him between the eyes as much as it has. It's really set back Ivan Provorov. Shane Gostaspear is a shell of himself. So they got major team building issues in Philadelphia. They're going to have to work out, but I got it wrong. I thought this team at the beginning of the year would compete for the cup and I got it totally wrong. Yeah, no, you, you and I both, like I said, I mean, I, I, people kept asking me, I said, I thought the four teams coming out of the East and I got the Penguins wrong too. I thought it was going to be the Flyers, Islanders, Caps and Bruins. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I certainly underestimated uh, Pittsburgh and, and how well they've been able to play and, and the job Mike Sullivan's done in Pittsburgh. This well, what's amazing about that, I'm glad you recognize that. I thought the Penguins would make it, and a big reason why was Mike Sullivan as a coach and Sidney Crosby as a player. Um, and you can see Crosby's, I think, playing as well as he's ever played. It's unbelievable. But also, Mike Sullivan, I showed the game the other day. I was doing it uh, with Johnny Forzen up in Buffalo on NBC, the Pittsburgh Penguins were playing a 1-2-2 in the neutral zone. I don't know the last time the Pittsburgh <laughs> Penguins ever thought about playing a 1-2-2 against Buffalo Sabres, no less. But that's how they were playing in the neutral zone. And I said, this is vintage Jacques Lemaire from when they were winning Stanley Cups in New Jersey. So Mike changes as he goes along. He adapts his systems for the types of players that he has. Without Christopher Tan or Brandon Tanev, excuse me, and without Evgeny Malkin, they've had to make some adjustments in Pittsburgh and they've made those adjustments and it's worked fantastically well for them. Mike's coached as well as I've ever seen him coach. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, good for him for establishing his own legacy in this league. He, he was Torts's assistant for so yes, long. Yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how, I mean, and Pierre, you told me you've been traveling around, so you had the luxury of really seeing the whole league how does the East stack up with, with some of these other divisions? It's 
it's such a unique year in that, you know, the teams in the East just, you know, no one's seeing each other. So it's right. really, once we get to that NHL final four, once you de- determine your division champions through the first two rounds of the playoffs, it's really going to be a crapshoot in, in that final four. How do you think the East stacks up and where's the main competition uh, amongst the other divisions? Well, the, the thing you have in the West is you've got two teams in Colorado and Vegas uh, are unbelievably lethal. I think Minnesota is the ultimate dark horse that nobody's talked about out there. But that'd be it from the West, in my opinion. But I think if we get a showdown between Colorado and Vegas, it's hard to think that they wouldn't be the Stanley Cup favorite, no matter who uh, is involved. In terms of the Central, Tampa, Carolina, and Florida are putting on an unbelievable race. Those guys are put. I would not want to finish in the 2-3 hole there. Because right. no matter what happens there, in the two, three hole, it's probably going seven games, six maybe at the least. And then you're not going to have a lot left because I think whomever finishes in the top spot, whether they play Dallas, whether they play Nashville, I think they'll have their – even Chicago's in it. I think they'll have their way. Uh, but the East is right up there. I think the East is right up there in terms of competitive balance. I think the worst division is the North division. Part of that's been because of COVID. Part of that's because of the redevelopment of the Ottawa Senators. Uh, Vancouver's grossly underachieved. Calgary, most of the year, is underachieved. Montreal's not achieved to the level that a lot of people thought they would. They spent $102 million this offseason, Andrew. $102 million. And they're struggling to make the playoffs. I mean, so you look at it, um, I think the East and probably the Central are the two best divisions. Yeah, I, I was, I, I wanted to, you know, just kind of wrap this all up with the situation in Vancouver, as you mentioned, do you, you know, how, and, and first of all, it was amazing to see them come back and win that game yesterday. Yeah, for sure. yeah, I mean that, you know, I know sports writers aren't supposed to root, but you, you had to feel good for the guys in the room. And I, I thought it was really good that JT Miller spoke up the other day and and said you know guys this this isn't right you're pushing us to do something that that may be completely you know unsafe to us just can you give us your thoughts on you know how that situation's been handled and and how do you think it's going to resolve itself you know before the end of the season with with the Canucks having to play so many games yeah, I just hope players don't have long-term injuries, number one. I love the way you phrase that. I totally agree with your thoughts on JT Miller, by the way. At some point, I'm going to send him a note just to say congratulations for having the intestinal yeah. fortitude to step up for your body. And I don't mean his body. I mean the NHL player body. Yeah. Um, no, I, I haven't agreed with what's gone on here. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate. I know for a fact. The NHL cares about the well-being of their players because without great players, we don't really have a great league. So I know that Gary Bettman and Bill Daly care. It can't be fun running this league right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The financial losses, Andrew, have been unbelievably horrific around the league. I know fans don't care about, you know, the well-being of the owners. I get that. That's all part of it. But I can tell you that the owners are getting massacred. They're Mm -hmm. not just getting beat down. They're getting massacred financially. And I don't know what the staying power is for the whole league if we can't get fans back in the building starting next year, yeah. I don't know because the financial losses this year are overwhelming. I don't think anybody really realizes last year's financial losses compounded with this year's financial losses. My goodness gracious, not, not fun to think about if you're an accountant for any one of these teams. Yeah, no. And, you know, just 
to JT Miller for for a second here. I, I got to cover him. You know, I remember being on the phone with him as an 18-year-old when he was drafted with the Rangers. Right. He's probably amongst all the people I've covered, he has grown so much as as a person. And, and, and you see a guy mature from where he was as an 18-year-old to, to becoming a team leader and, and really a league leader, the way he is both in Tampa. And now in Vancouver, he, he's one of the most impressive players I've seen in, in terms of personal growth. And I'm not talking on the ice. I'm just talking as a person. We, we agree 100%. Um, you know, I knew him when he was a kid playing for the Plymouth team in the Ontario Hockey League. And, you know, he's part of that great world junior team uh, 2013 that Phil Housley coached that went over in Ufa, Russia. And uh, JT was an important part of that. He played uh, with Johnny Goudreau and Jimmy Vesey on the top line for Team USA. And that was amazingly impressive. But again, not overly mature as a person. Mm-hmm. And you see the growth after the Rangers traded him to Tampa and the growth that I saw when he was in Tampa. Last summer, I spent a lot of time with JT and the Vancouver Canucks in Edmonton. They were one of the real surprise stories. And he was, and you nailed it, Andrew. He was a huge team leader in that environment in, in Vancouver. So I would agree the internal growth of the young management phenomenal really has been. Yeah. And just to wrap it up with an Islanders point, I, you, you sort of see some of that same growth in Matthew Barzell. Uh, you know, he's Barry Trotz has done wonders with Matthew Barzell in, in terms of, you know, focusing him and getting him to understand the complete game of hockey and not just the hockey that's played in front of the red line. I, I agree with that. I think internally you got to look at some peer pressure too. And one of the great leaders in the National Hockey League, and the Islanders miss him, by the way, especially on the power play, Anders Lee. Sure. And I've spent so much time around Anders when he played at Notre Dame. Um, and just he, this is an amazing human being. I know you get to cover him, and I don't think he gets nearly enough love around the league for the type of human being he is, number one. The stuff that he does in his own community to try to make the community better – and what he does for the teammates, it reminds me a lot of Chris Drury when he played for the Buffalo Sabres in particular. Um, and, and Chris is one of the most amazing people I've known. You know, I coached his brother Teddy in two different cities. So I've known the Drury's a long time. And so I, I respect guys like that. I think they make an impact on their team. And I think Matthew's learned a lot. Matthew Barzell's learned a lot from Andrews Lee. Yeah, yeah. Hey, last thing, I, I know you made this point during the, the broadcast last night. You were talking about how vocal and how loud and how, you know, engaged the Islanders bench was and how, you know, that that's not always the case with NHL teams. Is, is that a a Barry Trotz? Is that a function of, you know, who they are as players? Is that Barry's leadership? And just, you know, as a former coach, how much do you love it? when you see the players engaged like that and helping out their teammates? I think, first of all, I think as a former coach, it's phenomenal to see your players engaged like that. Number two, I don't know if that's Barry's influence or not, but I would tell you this, his Washington teams were not as demonstrative as his Islander teams are, and his Nashville teams were definitely not as loud as his Mm. Islander teams. But I think there's a byproduct to all this. I remember going into the pods last year, the pod in Toronto, the pod in Edmonton, no fans in the building. And one of the things that I know a lot of players and coaches were talking about was how do we manufacture enthusiasm without having crowds there to cheer on goals or boo the opposition. And I know a lot of coaches really made a point of telling their players, we got to create our own energy. We got to create our own stimuli. And so I wouldn't be surprised knowing how focused and attention to detail oriented Barry is 
that if he didn't take his leadership, say, we got to communicate a whole lot better, generate our own enthusiasm. And I can tell you, last night, the Islander bench was unbelievably loud, very positive, you know, they weren't playing great. And they support each other fantastically well. It was really impressive to see. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I, I do miss being in the dressing rooms and, and you know, getting that one-on-one -on -one time with some of the players because, you know, and not just, you know, in terms of covering hockey, I, I, I agree. It's, it's one of the best rooms I've ever been in, you know, in terms of the personalities and, 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 and the leaders in there. So I, I, I and definitely. And you've been in some good rooms. You've been I, I have been. Really the, you know, the, the, the Rangers room was, was good for a long time. You know, when, when Callie was the, the, the captain there and when Yager was there, you know, absolutely. And even when I covered the devils, you know, Guys like Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac and Andy Green, now all with the Islanders, ran a really, really good – even Mike Camilleri was was really good in that room. So, yeah, no, I've been around some good teams. But it, it is noticeable, you know, what a tight-knit, good room that the Islanders really have. It's, you know what's really cool about the Islanders? I had a chance to run into uh, Lou Lamorello last night after the game, and I call him coach. I don't ever call him Lou. I don't call him Mr. Lamorello. I call him coach. And that goes back to when he was a legendary coach at Providence College. Not a little bit good, really good. And I said, hey, coach, uh, better get your points and get out of town. He goes, Pierre, we're getting out of here as fast as we can. <laughs> so even he can smile a little bit. And you know, sometimes he can be a little bit hard on people. But I would just say this about the Islanders and, and the franchise that they are right now. The ownership is really stable. I'm so excited for them to move into their new building. I think it's going to be fantastic, Andrew. Just like I told Mr. Ledecky when I talked to him probably five or six years ago at Madison Square Garden, if the honors were a stock, I'd buy them. Now their price is getting a little high, but they've merited that. They're going to be really good, and they're going to be good for a while. And, and I think a big reason why is that Coach Lamorello is still running the ship. Yeah, and, and just uh, I, I agree with one of your first points, you know, having to get gotten to know John Ledecky a little bit. It just one of one one of the really gentlemen, you know, fine people that, that I've met in this game. And I'm really happy for his success. Obviously, you know, Scott Malkin's a little more recalcitrant and doesn't do the public thing. So I haven't gotten to meet him, but but John, John's really good people. So I, I, I just got to get John to learn how to swim like his niece, Katie. <laughs> well, that, that's the whole thing we should all do that <laughs> <laughs> hey pierre thank you so much for all your insight this has been absolutely wonderful and uh, always great catching up with you anytime andrew i'll always come on for you you know that you're a good friend thank you as always pierre is incredibly generous with his time and you know he, he's made that clear and, and i really do appreciate that and i i can honestly say that pierre loves the sport of hockey and and works to promote it as much as anybody i i've ever met um so you've heard pierre's answers to my questions and now it's time for me to respond to your questions it's time for your questions with Andrew's Answers. And we take our questions for Andrew's Answers uh, for this episode via Newsday Islanders text. And we'll start out with Jonathan Goldstein, who says, Why did we sign Kyle Palmieri if we aren't going to use him on the top line? And 
for one, you traded for Palmieri. Sorry, Jonathan, not to be nitpicky here. You, you traded for Palmieri, and we'll, we'll see if the Islanders do re-sign Kyle, uh, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent. And, uh, you know, just looking right now at the Islanders' salary cap situation, you would have to say that, that Kyle probably will not be able to be re-signed. But, you know, uh, Lou, Lou Lamarillo has worked some uh, cap magic in the past, so we'll, we'll see if that's possible. But to get to the point, you know, why trade for Palmieri if you're not going to use him on the top line? And as you know, I, I advocated for the Islanders to go out and get Kyle Palmieri based on what I saw when I covered Kyle uh, with the Devils. Um Kyle did not always play on the top line in New Jersey. Um, you know, he did at times. Uh, you know, him and Taylor Hall would play together at times. But there were there were other times, you know, he was, you know, maybe playing down in the lineup, second line, or, you know, we're playing with Travis Zajac, uh, the other player the Islanders got. Um, you know, I there there must be something right now where, you know, both, you know, if you look at... Uh, the top line with Matthew Barzell and Jordan Everly, both of those are right-handed shots, as is Kyle Palmieri. So, you know, it, it's been done. You know, you get three righties on a line together, and, and Barry Trotz has used Kyle both on the right and the left side since being acquired. But, you know, th- that might have something to do with it there. Um, you know, you could say, well, are, are you going to substitute... Kyle for Jordan Eberly, and uh, you know I, I think Barry Trotz is showing you that uh, he he wants to keep those two together regardless of who is playing on the left side. And I know these questions are coming after Barry Trotz in a a game that turned out to be a one nothing. Uh, overtime win in Philly, and uh, you, you heard me document uh, the Islanders' goal-scoring struggles. Uh, you you know, Sunday was a game where uh, Barry again started with Leo Komarov with with uh, with Matthew Barzell and Jordan Eberle. And uh, look, I I get the angst I'm I'm hearing via social media and you know through Newsday Islanders text the questions such as this you know when are they going to move Kyle Palmieri up to the top line especially since they have already tried Travis Zajac there and that was by moving uh Barzell uh to a wing um to get Zajac in the middle and you heard me talk with Pierre about you know uh Barzell and the faceoffs and how that's going to work and I, I I do think, uh, particularly if these goal struggles continue, I do think uh, at some point Barry is going to be tempted enough to see if that that Kyle Palmieri Matthew Barzell uh, pairing might have a little bit of magic in it. Um, but you know, it, it's also a matter of you know trying to lengthen out the lineup and. You know, maybe he's, you know, Kyle, Kyle's been uh, on on Brock Nelson's right wing, uh, you know, and, and so now you theoretically, and again, I'm, I'm talking purely theoretical since the Islanders are not scoring in bunches here, but you had uh, Palmieri with Nelson and Michael Dalcal on a second line, and uh, you know Kyle has also worked with uh, Jean Gabriel Pajot 
And, you know, listening to Barry after the game, it sounded like Oliver Wallstrom might be up for a breather here. I certainly suspect that Barry is going to continue trying to juggle these lines and, until he finds a right combination. And like I said, I, I do suspect at some point Kyle does get a chance to play with Matthew Barzell if for no other reason than to see if it works or not. And who knows, maybe it will. But, you know, Kyle's the kind of guy, you know, straight line guy, wants to go to the crease and, you know, and Matthew, we know what kind of game he has, you know, creating time and space for himself with with that kind of uh, skating that he has and then looking to uh, pass to his teammates. So I, I could see you know, that combination sort of working because Kyle is going to get around the crease and, uh, you know, look for shots and rebounds. So, a- a- again, long answer to a, a one-sentence question, but I think we see that at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Boyle uh, with a two-parter here. Uh, one is more of a declarative statement. Uh, Islanders need to play Ilya Sorokin every game now. Once the Islanders are down a goal, the game is over. They are not coming back. You can't rely on a shutout every single goal. That is what the goalies are reduced to at this point. And uh, let me answer that before getting on to uh question 1A from Thomas Boyle, but Barry is not going to abandon Semyon Varlamov. He's just not. And and in fact, I I think, you know, game one of the playoffs, you probably, knowing how Barry is and, you know, kind of his loyalty to, uh, you know, guys who've done it for him before, I would say Semyon Varlamov starts game one of the playoffs and then you go from there. Um, so no, I, I don't think Ilya Sorokin is going to play every game. Um, for one thing, he's never, he's never done that at an NHL level and you, and you play far fewer games in the KHL than you do in the NHL. So I think Mitch Korn, the director of goaltending and Piero Greco, along with Barry, uh, are, are being mindful of managing Ilya Sorokin's minutes. I did ask Ilya after uh, Sunday night's game about playing consecutive games and how good he felt about getting into that rhythm. He played Friday, played very well against the Bruins that night, despite the 3-0 loss, which speaks to Thomas's point of, you know, once the Islanders get down, trouble coming back, which they have done. Let's be honest, they've, they've done that. They've, they've had their third period rallies this season. So let's not say the Islanders never come back. It's just... Of late, as I noted, the last eight games have been really tough in terms of uh, scoring goals. Um, uh, As far as playing Sorokin every game and asking Ilya about it, you know, he said it's all about physical conditioning and and he feels really good in his physical conditioning. And, you know, he said simply, I can play more. but again, uh, Barry is in no way going to abandon Semyon Varlamov. Um, he's going to use both down the stretch. And I think, you know, in the playoffs, you know, and this is provided the Islanders do make the playoffs, which I, I certainly think they will. Um, yeah, I, I think you're going to see both goalies in there. I don't think it's going to be uh, an instance like last season where Varley... 
uh, played what I think he played in 20 of the 22 games. I think Thomas Grice was in for three games. If my memory serves me, it's not going to be that situation. I don't think. Um, but yeah, you, you know, your, your point, the Islanders are not rallying as as much as they have uh in the past in, in the past you know the islanders would get down a goal or two and and you didn't feel like the game is over and i get the sense now that if the islanders are down two goals based on how they're struggling to score yeah you you kind of feel like it's not that the islanders are giving up um but they're they're not their their chances of coming back and getting multiple goals is, is pretty slim at this point um Thomas Boyle's second question is, when is Trotz going to show accountability with his players? And that's kind of a, a harsh statement. Um, I, I think Barry Trotz should be given a lot of leeway uh, for how he handles players. And I, I know, you know, maybe some of this is from seeing Leo Komarov with Matthew Barzell and Jordan Eberle again. And, you know, Barry was asked about that after Sunday's game, and he gave a, <laughs> you know, uh, what what I considered a pretty impassioned answer. Um, I, I don't know if it was one that necessarily pleased Islander fans, but Barry was saying, you know, he understands how everyone looks at analytics, and with a player like Leo Komarov, or specifically with Leo Komarov, don't look at the analytics, just look at what he's doing on the ice. And I know some of you will say, well, you know, he's not scoring when Matthew Barzell sets him up in front of the crease and he's prone to the third period penalty. So I I, I get that. But look, Leo Komarov's game Sunday in Philadelphia, and I asked Barry about this after the game, or I kind of said, I was like, that could have been Leo's best game uh, of the season. The way he was back-checking, the way he he was supporting his his line mates, and the way he was playing along the walls, I, he, he played a heck of a game, um, and he definitely contributed to that win. Um, and again, analytics might not show that, but you know, you saw with your eyes him coming back and you heard Pierre talking about how Barzi had a rough game with the turnovers. Well, there, there was one instance in the first period uh, off of Barzell turnover where Leo Komarov might've been the only reason why that didn't turn into a Flyers goal. Um, as, as far as showing accountability with his players, uh, you know, you're asking me, you know, why isn't Trotz benching anyone? And, you know, he has from time to time sat Matthew Barzell here and there. You know, he has not done the same, uh, you know, just going off social media. I know there's some, why is Josh Bailey, you know, always on the ice as he is. And uh, obviously Josh and Cal Clutterbuck being hurt right now is not helping the Islanders lineup. Um Trotz is very even keel. He doesn't overreact. And the fact that he's not benching people is not the same as saying there's no accountability under Barry Trotz. I I would argue completely the opposite, that since Barry Trotz and Lou Lamarillo have come in, there's been nothing but accountability in the organization. Everything is spelled out. Everyone knows their roles. I'm not going to say that, you know, if you're not specifically in your role, you you know, you're, you're getting a ton of ice time taken away from you. Uh, so maybe I'm arguing against myself. And, and I know, you know, 
people on social media are also a little curious why Kiefer Bellows, if the Islanders need scoring, are not in. Um, I, I suspect you, you'll see Kiefer Bellows again, maybe sooner rather than later, uh, with the way the Islanders are, are not scoring here. Um, but to, to say Trotz has no accountability with his players, I, I, I don't think that's on base. I, I think the players respond to Barry in, in, in a very deep way. I, I really do. I mean, you just see it. You know, Matthew Barzell cares about, you know, getting back on defense now. And that was something, you know, when Barry came in that you, you couldn't have said. And, and, and that's Barry and his staff teaching Matthew Barzell accountability on the ice. Um, Michael Trecarico says, uh, with the Rangers and Bruins both surging, how do you think the division shakes out? Um, I like the trade for Palmieri and Zajac when it happened, but in retrospect, would Lou have been better off just adding Hall if he was willing to come here? It seems like the Islanders could have just plugged Hall on the top line, whereas the trade they did for, uh, for Palmieri and Zajac resulted in a lot of lineup shuffling that has impacted the team's productivity. Um, I, I would also argue, like I said, having Josh Bailey and Cal Clutterbuck out is is also a factor. Um, and yeah, the, the, there's no doubt that the Islanders and Barrier are still looking for the right chemistry, getting uh, the, the two ex-Devils into the lineup. But look, you know, Lou was certainly in and in heavy on Taylor Hall, and I think you hit it by saying if Hall was willing to come here. And the sense around the NHL is that Hall wanted to wind up in Boston, and you saw the package that Buffalo took back, uh, Bjork in a, a second rounder, and, and they, as I mentioned to Pierre, I mean, and Buffalo threw in Curtis Lazar to, to the Bruins, which is huge. Um so, you know, I, I, I certainly get the sense that Hall didn't necessarily want to come here. And yes, if tra- Taylor Hall gets traded here, he probably goes right on Matthew Barzell's line. That That's, you know, I, I don't think there's much arguing there. But uh, in retrospect, I still like the trade for Palmieri and Zajac. I, I think the depth is really, you know, you see the injuries, and uh, as Pierre mentioned, with Zajac, now you go five deep in the center position, you know, most important position up front, and uh, that's going to do the Islanders loads of goods going forward. So, uh, you know, I I think it would have been a very interesting call if if Taylor Hall was willing to come here, um, because I think the Islanders... Uh, as you saw with what they traded for Palmieri and Zajac, I, I think they had a better uh, package on the table for the Sabres. Um, Michael Fernandez says, um, I saw what Barry said about Leo, but proof is in the results. The team isn't scoring with the cast they keep putting on the top line. When does Larry? When does Barry put a score with Barzell and Eberle? And, and I've kind of touched upon this and, you know, the, the the formula and you saw Barry go away from Leo uh in, in the game uh you know he he kind of put his lines in a blender looking for some results last night so I don't know how much you can go by last night or by Sunday night's game um Barry does like the puck retrieval uh aspect that Leo Komarov brings on the forecheck uh you getting the puck back to 
Matthew Barzell, but you know, he, here's one thing, and 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 we all heard what Barry said about analytics. Um, I do agree. There have been a lot of plays where Komarov has parked himself or gotten himself to the crease, and Barzi has has tried to find him at the crease, and Leo just doesn't have the hands to to make that work, and, and he's missed some scoring opportunities. And I know that's probably frustrating for Barzi. Um, I, I, I don't think Leo Komarov winds up on, on Barzell's line for that much longer. Uh, I, I do think, as I said above, that, uh, you are going to see him try Kyle Palmieri there, uh, eventually, or, you know, I know Anthony Beauvillier is struggling. He would be maybe another option to get up there. Um, and, and also another option, um, yeah, you talk about center depth. How about putting Pajot on Barzell's left wing along with Jordan Eberle and letting Travis Zajac center that third line? Um, I I would be totally in favor of that. Um, but we'll see if Barry agrees with me. And well, listen. Thank you for those questions, and thank you for listening. And uh, and uh, here's a little bit of a teaser. I'll be back with episode 82 later this week to give you my thoughts on UBS Arena after I take a construction tour of the Islanders' soon-to-be home. So I'll tell you what the tour was like and what it was like being in the building and what I think that experience is going to be like for you, the fans, uh, when you get into that building, which is targeted to open in November out at Belmont Park. And please follow me on Twitter at agrosnewsday, and you can go to newsday.com backslash aisles for all our multimedia Islanders' content And also, please consider subscribing to Newsday Islanders texts. You can text 631-303-3766. That's 631-303-3766. Or go to newsday.com backslash aisles text to start your 14-day trial subscription. And until later this week, happy hockey, everybody.